2: The FT. The government cranks up the publicity for state pension changes. Multi asset funds are marketed as off the peg solutions for ordinary investors, but do they live up to their billing? And why the Swiss may be about to give the gold price a major boost? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Neely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleague Joe Cumbo plus two special studio guests, Jason Hollands of Tilney Best Invest and Simona Gabarini of ETF Securities. Spare a thought for Steve Webb, the pensions minister. Earlier this week, he found himself standing beside a railway bridge in one of South London's less salubrious areas at 7 o'clock in the morning. There's no scandal here, though. On the bridge above him was a huge hoarding advertising the changes to the state pension that are coming up in 2016. The massive poster is part of a nationwide advertising campaign designed to raise awareness of the new system. And Mr Webb was taking part in a photo opportunity to mark the start of that campaign. In 2016, the existing system of a basic state pension plus a whole load of add-ons, ranging from pension credits to top-ups like the second state pension, will be scrapped in favour of a single flat-rate payment. It sounds simple, but as usual with pensions, there's a lot of intricate detail – Our pensions correspondent, Joe Cumbo, joins me now. Joe, why is this big awareness campaign kicking off now when these changes that it's talking about are still 18 months away?
3: Well, the trigger is that it is 500 days until the changes come in and given the complexity of the changes and the amount of people who are going to be affected, they need to start raising awareness of the changes and give people an opportunity to prepare themselves for the new state pension.
2: Now, with any change on this magnitude, and this is a, a very big change, there are going to be winners and losers. Very generally speaking, who are the winners and the losers from the change to the state pension?
3: The winners from the, the changes to the state pension will broadly be women and the self-employed and I say firstly women because they're essentially uh, largely in the group of people who have been carers taking care of children or uh, even elderly people and they haven't had an opportunity to build up uh, additional state pension which people have or could do through a company pension scheme so under the new system they will be able to uh, claim a flat rate uh, which doesn't penalise them for for not being able to pay extra pension and it will be be higher than what they could have achieved under the current system and for the self-employed uh, they're, they're also in the same camp as that they haven't been able to to build up additional state pension but under the new system they will all pay into the same pot given that everyone has an opportunity to work for 35 years and build up enough credits to get the flat rate the losers from this, conversely, will be the higher earners mainly, who have, um, up until now uh, and over the next couple of years, until it, it goes away in 2016, been able to build up that additional state pension. Going forward, they will not be able to uh, to build up state pension beyond the, uh, the the limit which has been set, which we're talking about 148 pounds. Under the current system, people can build up entitlement beyond the basic state pension, but they won't be able to do that. So, in the long run, when uh, a Additional state pension filters out, drains out of the system. It will be the younger people, perhaps our children, who won't have an opportunity to build up as much as perhaps myself will have through contracting out.
2: Now, the basic flat rate state pension that's going to be introduced—one hundred and forty-eight pounds a week—you mentioned there—that um, compares very favourably with the current basic state pension, which I think I'm right in saying is about one hundred and twelve. One hundred thirteen. One hundred thirteen. <laughs> well, what's a pound between friends? So the sting in the tail is that the uh, the eligibility requirements are changing a little bit, aren't they, in terms yes. of the, 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 the minimum amount of time you have to contribute That's for.
3: right. The To qualify for the state pension, you need to contribute. Currently, it's 30 years of national insurance contributions through paid work or credits, which you can notch up by taking care of children or through caring for others. Uh, but that, under the new system, is going to rise from 30 years to 35, and there will be a new floor introduced you will have to have a minimum of 10 years of contributions or credits so if you've got less than that you won't unfortunately have any contribution towards the state pension and the the goal or the, the, the objective behind that was to to filter out of the system people are only here for a few years for example on a working holiday or students from having any future claim to the state pension if they haven't contributed more than 10 years.
2: And finally, for those coming up to retirement in the next 18 months, uh, i.e. just before the changes come in, are there any transition arrangements? And if so, do we know yet what those are?
3: It's terribly complicated, as you've uh, said earlier on in the piece, that um, no one should expect that they will be getting the full rate uh, from 2016 because of the previous work histories. There's got to be an eligibility uh, criteria met in terms of the 35 years. If you've contracted out, that will be factored in into the state pension, uh, that entitlement at some point. There is an opportunity for anyone who is within five years of reaching state pension age, it's not retirement age, it's state pension age, to have a forecast done of what they could uh, achieve under the new state pension. Uh, And the government is making that available now. And it's a a good idea if you're within five years of reaching state pension age to, to ask for that foundation amount to be sent to you.
2: Thanks very much, Joe. There's more about the campaign in this weekend's FT Money, and lots more about pensions in general, on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Just click on the pensions tab in the sub-navigation. Still to come on the show, why a referendum in Switzerland could give the gold price a huge boost. First, let's take another look at multi-asset funds. In the turmoil that followed the collapse of Lehman Brothers in late 2008, many investors found to their cost that an outperforming fund was often one that fell by slightly less than its benchmark. In other words, investors still lost money, just not quite as much as they would have lost had they been in an index fund. So along came the financial services industry with a new product, multi-asset funds, where a manager uses a mix of asset types to smooth out volatility, reduce risk and provide extra diversification. Ever since then, fund groups have been launching new products and poaching managers from one another. It's easy to see the attractions of multi-asset funds, instant diversification across shares, bonds, property, cash and other assets in just one product. But are they really any good? Let's ask Jason Hollands, Managing Director at Tilney Best Invest, a financial advice group. Jason, first of all, can you explain for us uh, the difference between multi-asset funds, uh, funds of funds and managed portfolios, which all can
4: do a similar thing. Yes, well, multi-asset is a general catch-all for any fund that invests across a variety of asset classes. How you do that uh, uh, can differ. Funds of funds will invest across other fund products, usually from different management groups from across the market. But uh, there are some funds of funds, for example, which will only invest across the funds managed by a particular fund group. Another approach that can be used is investing directly into equities, bonds, or or perhaps using ETFs or derivatives. So these are a variety of different ways of multi-asset investing. And in a typical multi-asset
2: fund where you have sort of one manager or one management team uh, making all the asset allocation decisions and picking the shares and bonds and so on, what's generally speaking in the mix? What are they
4: putting in there? Oh, so it really depends on the risk profile of the fund. And this is um, one of the areas where you've seen a lot of new products launched which are funds designed to match different risk profiles. And they will broadly have the same asset mix and uh, regularly rebalance. So uh, most funds will obviously include an exposure to equities and bonds, but more diversified funds will also have exposure perhaps to areas like currencies or commodities or commercial property. Can
2: you tell us a bit more about the risk rating in particular? So this is the idea that you buy a particular product not to target a a particular level of return, but to
4: target a particular level
2: of risk. Is that right?
4: That's right. This is where there's been a lot of growth. And part of this is really driven by advisors and uh, changes in regulation, which have put the onus on advisors to make sure their clients remain in suitable Uh, investment products to match their risk profile. So there have been a a lot of products launched that are designed to match different risk profiles typically the advisor will use some form of third party software tool um, to help risk profile their client and then they will go out and pick a fund that has um, uh, an allocation to equities bonds and these other asset classes that is deemed to be suitable for that risk profile of client. So obviously, the uh, more aggressive you are and the more long-term and more growth-orientated you are, you'll have a bigger exposure to equities. The more cautious you are, you're more likely to have a higher exposure to bonds and perhaps um, uh, other areas like um, absolute return funds that are less volatile. Of course, a lot of um,
2: investors uh, don't use an advisor these days. They do it themselves using a platform like the one you offer, for instance. If they buy a multi-asset fund, are they likely to pay more than they would for, say, a straight equity or bond fund?
4: A lot of funder funds will have um, higher expenses than, say, buying a UK equity fund, because obviously you have the management fees for the multi-asset fund, and then there are the underlying costs of the funds they invest in. That isn't always the case, though. For example, uh, if the fund company uh, offers a multi-asset fund that just invests in strategies they manage, um, it would be normal that they would actually rebate all the underlying costs. But usually there is obviously a cost, uh, an additional level of cost because you're paying um, for the underlying funds and for the management of the multi-asset fund you're invested in.
2: Are there passive options here as well? Could you just buy a a multi-asset passive fund?
4: Yes, those are also becoming popular, particularly in the advisor market. RDR, the regulatory changes we've had over the last couple of years, have made fees uh, much higher on the radar of investors because there's greater transparency. So a lot of advisor firms are now trying to address those concerns of investors by greater use of passive-only portfolios.
2: And finally, Jason, if you're, um, if you're an investor at home and you're thinking, well, these funds um, sound pretty good, it's a kind of set-and-forget uh, uh, product, what are the sorts of things investors should look out for if they're considering buying a multi-asset fund?
4: I think the things you want to look at, first of all, is it one of these funds that has a predefined risk profile? In other words, if you know you want to be in a cautious investment choose one of the funds which will broadly always um, be managed to that risk profile. However, of course, there are some investors who are happy to take on more risk when uh, the the managers are feeling bullish and be in a a fund that is able to become more cautious in tougher times. So that's the first decision is to see, is it a fund that's managed to risk profile or is it a fund that's managed to return profile? For example, delivering 4% more than cash. Uh, The second thing to look at is if it's a fund of funds, do they invest across the whole market? Can they choose the best manager for European exposure and a different firm for UK exposure, for example? Or does it just invest in the strategies offered by that asset manager? Because few asset managers are good in all areas and all of the time. And then, of course, it's also important to bear in mind the costs of these funds and make sure that you don't feel that they're prohibitive. Thank you very much, Jason. There's more about the growing use of multi-asset funds
2: in this weekend's FT Money, where we look in more detail at the issues of benchmarking and risk ratings in particular. We also look at the performance records and asset allocation of the biggest funds in that space. FT Money is of course part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday. You can also read online at ft.com forward slash money or on tablet devices using our new web app. We're always keen to hear your views too. Email us about anything that's on your mind. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. For most of the 1990s, the world's central banks were net sellers of gold. The yellow metals price hadn't moved much in years, holdings of gold don't generate any income, and they cost a lot to store. Central banks preferred to hold government bonds or other currencies, particularly the newly minted euro. Euro. The Bank of England famously sold off most of its gold holdings at rock-bottom prices, although it was far from the only central bank to do this. But Switzerland could be about to reverse that trend – On November 30th, Swiss citizens will vote in one of their regular referendums as to whether the Swiss National Bank should be obliged to hold 20% of all its assets in gold. And what's more, that it should store all that bullion in Switzerland rather than in vaults in London, Singapore or New York. The Swiss Parliament has already rejected this idea and the Swiss National Bank has reacted with horror to the suggestion. But under Switzerland's system of cantonal government, it's the people's decision which way will it go. Let's ask Simona Gabarini, an analyst at ETF Securities, a provider of exchange-traded products linked to gold and other commodities. Simona, welcome to the Money Thank Show. Thank you. Do we have any sense of which way this vote is likely to go?
1: Uh, It's difficult to say at the moment. Uh, The latest polls were in favour, actually, of a yes vote, although they were just a little bit short of the majority. So should those votes be closer to the majority? And that would definitely mean that the Swiss Central Bank would have to kind of increase its reserves of gold.
2: Now, they've said that they're they're very against this idea. Why? Why are they so so sort of horrified by the idea of having to hold a fifth of their assets in gold?
1: Well, it would mean a lot of gold buying as well. um, It's true they would have five years to kind of uh, build up 20% of their reserves in gold, but that would also make it a lot more difficult for them to hold their currency at 120 against the euro. So there would likely be um, an appreciation of the currency meaning that the central bank would really struggle to kind of maintain um, the current level of the currency, which is their target.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very important to them, isn't it? They're trying to yeah, stop the franc getting too strong. Okay, if the um, SNB had to buy up um, all that gold, what sort of quantities are we talking about relative to the size of the gold market as a whole? I mean, is it a really huge amount? Yeah,
1: it's a really big amount. It's 1,500 tonnes. So that's uh, over 50% of the overall supply of gold in a year. So that's a, that's a really big amount, but they would have five years to reach that amount. So in terms of daily trading of gold, the impact would be minimal. Okay, is that perhaps
2: why the gold price hasn't or doesn't seem to have reacted that much to to the possibility that this referendum may go for a yes?
1: It could be. However, should, actually, uh, should it actually happen, then we would likely see a rise in the gold price. It's not really because the amount uh, on a daily basis uh, um, of gold purchases would actually impact the gold market, but it's a, a change in sentiment and a p- potential change in other central banks' policy as well.
2: Okay and what else has been happening in gold recently because the price has been struggling really since since 2011.
1: Well yeah we we are seeing a situation in which uh, risks at, at global level are decreasing and that's uh, uh, in line with the potentially weakness in the gold price uh, which is normally considered a safe haven and a um, kind of a a currency almost of last resort in uh, very risky environments. So given that the US and also China to some extent are keeping on growing and showing signs of of resilience, then it's normal to see some weakness in in the gold price as well. But at the moment, the gold price is reaching a level that is really close to the marginal cost of production, meaning that if it keeps falling and potentially negotiate below this, this level, then we might see some kind of reaction on the supply side. So some mines might be shut, and in the longer term, we might see some supply reduction.
2: Okay, Simona, thank you very much for joining us and uh, watch this space for the results of that referendum. There's just time to tell you a little bit more about this weekend's paper. My column looks at what's gone wrong with Britain's supermarkets, David Stevenson looks at some interesting developments in crowdfunding and we look at credit rating agencies amid calls for the reports they produce to be standardised and made available for free. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Joe, Jason Hollands from Tilney Best Invest, and Simona Gabarini from ETF Securities. For more downloads, go to ft.com/podcasts.